welcome. Prepare your heart as we dive into the Word of God. Pastor Steve of Beloved Church in Lena, Illinois is about to lead you into a life-changing encounter with grace and truth. Jesus Christ has a divine destiny perfectly orchestrated for those who are willing to be adventurous enough to receive His favor and blessing into their life. Our prayer is that you will allow the presence of the comforting Holy Spirit of God to radically display the Father's love for you. You are a part of God's beloved family, and that means you are greatly loved. Now over to Pastor Steve. All right, so now we'll do Q&A. And I... I'm not even, I'm not even going to ask you your questions because you, you just did that because I said something. Okay, fine, whatever. Ask your question to Kay. Kay's more patient and gracious than I am. <laughs> Stacy Castle. Okay. Um, I'm in discipleship. It's pretty painful sometimes. Um, and I've seen things in me that I didn't know was there. And that was really tough. But seeing things in people that I love that I didn't realize was there is really hard, and in my Karis class, I believe what Barry Bennett called it was sin consciousness, and I think that we've been taught that Jesus had to teach what was wrong before he could teach what was right, and that we talk about our eyes being open to the truth, so it's all making sense, but I still continue to struggle when I see things that I know aren't right I don't know what to do, so I don't say anything or don't say anything. <laughs> Am I going to get through this phase? I don't, I mean, we live in a world that's full of sin, so what do you do with all of that? I'll make the question more generic so it can apply to everybody. When you have people in your life that are not living their life right, People that you love, that you know. I'm not talking perfect stranger. I'm not talking about anybody that goes to Walmart. People that you know, people that you love, and likely are people who embrace some kind of a belief in Christianity. Whether you know that it's fake or they want it to be real. What do you do? What's your response? Give me the three steps the four, and the formula to exactly what to do. And you can probably hear from what I'm saying uh, that it doesn't work that way. Jesus deals with the heart of man, every heart of every man, the way Jesus deals with that heart. There's no formula. And we would love to have it. We would love to have the checklist like, what can I do to make K better? Right? One through five, ta-da, at the end, out pops perfect, super spiritual K. It doesn't even work for y'all. 
You can't even do it to yourself and you think that there's gonna be something for someone else. It doesn't work that way. I've learned this, some of these principles, the hard way. Because I used to have as one of my life mottos, uh, John 8, 31 and 32, that if, you, if a person knows the truth, then the truth will make them free. And so I just believed that that was a universal statement and so I just held people down, put them in a chokehold until they accepted the truth because I was doing them a favor, right? If you force someone, if you force feed the truth into someone, eventually they'll digest it and they'll like be transformed into Frankenstein's monster. And I know that you'll be shocked to hear this, but it caused a lot of problems at Beloved Church. Some of you need to thank Jesus you weren't at first-generation beloved church. <laughs> Those people, God bless them. I have come to realize that there is one of three responses that I have. And I'm going to let Kay give her response here in a minute. But when you have someone in your life that you love, that you know that they're probably not living their life right, whether that's in a singular place or whether that is generic across the board of their life. Here are your three likely choices. One, tell them the truth. Because likely nobody else is. One of the reasons that you're in their life is because God believes that you have the opportunity to do something that maybe somebody else doesn't. And if you haven't paid attention to society right now, you do realize nobody out there is saying the truth. It's gotten to the place where they're literally saying the fake, calling it truth. Men can get pregnant. Is there a stupider thing that humanity has ever invented than men can get pregnant? And they are teaching children that this is now the new science. That's what you're up against. And so telling people the truth is a requirement that all of us have if we believe that Jesus is our Lord. Now, having said that, if you don't speak the truth in love, then you're going to take the truth, turn it into a baseball bat, and think that someone's going to say, thank you very much, while they got Louisville Slugger across the side of their face. Don't work that way. You only receive truth from people that you believe love you enough to tell you truth that is going to benefit your life. So if you don't have the ability to say the truth in that way to people, it's probably not going to help. Now, there are these little tiny percentages of people where you just blast them and it literally shakes the stupid off them. Like, a, like an earthquake. Like, oh, I guess I better fix my house because it fell down. Yeah, wouldn't that be wise? But that is, that is very tiny of the, of the times that you just blast someone with the truth and they're like, oh my God, you're right. Thank you for telling me the truth. It is... It is almost non-existent. So choice number one is tell someone the truth. Make sure you tell them the truth in love. And the scriptures say that every word should be seasoned with grace. If it does not have the grace of God on it, then you are not telling them the truth. 
Your second response is nothing. And I know you're thinking like, hold on, heroes do hard things. I get it. But there are times that God wants someone else to do it because you ain't going to be able to do it. There are things in this room that I cannot say to people in this room. Cannot. Does that mean that God doesn't want those things said? No, God knows that some of you might receive the exact same thing that I would say from someone else. Which means I need to shut my mouth. So your second response is nothing. You pray for the laborers that come into the field of the people that are ripe and ready to be harvested. That's hard to do for a guy like me because I'm, I'm a bull in a china shop. I get it, I know, but everybody tells me I didn't think so and then thousands of people told me so I guess I have to accept it. And I have had to learn to shut up and stay out of the way because someone else is going to tell that person the truth. And if I'm supposed to shut up and I'm saying something, I just mucked up the plan of God for that person's life. So I better know that I know that I know that if I'm supposed to say something, I say something. If I'm supposed to shut up, I shut up. And then the third option is the Holy Spirit directly will minister to that person. This is a very small, tiny number of people because honestly, if a person had that intimate of a relationship with God, they probably wouldn't have some glaring issue in their life of, that, of the magnitude where you're like, oh my God, I have to talk to this person. But there are a few times, you know, a broken clock is, uh, is right twice a year, twice a day. See, even I need help. And there are times that even a, a spiritually um, distant person, that they will have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. That's my testimony. I was distant from God. I hated God because I thought I had the wrong opinion of who he was. And God came into my car without anybody else telling me anything. God came into my car. It was a sovereign work of God in my life. Now, I understand I am one out of a million that something like that happened. The majority of people, the, way, the reason they're going to respond to truth is because they heard the truth from someone likely that they believe loved them enough to tell them that truth. So those are, those are the three options that I have come to know are an opportunity. Say something because you're probably the only one. And this is the big one, just so you know. This is 80% of the time, if you have a personal relationship with that. And then the second one is shut up because God has someone else to go there and pray for that someone else. Pray for the Lord of the harvest that he sends that laborer. And then the third thing is they're just pray that the Holy Spirit says it directly to them and they receive it. Uh, one of the things I was thinking about uh, when you were talking about patience is uh, that, that we can't, it is going to be hard for us if we want something more than that person wants it. Like, they, they have to want it. They have to want to change. They have to want to 
hear the truths in the word of God, if they, if they don't want it for themselves, you forcing it on them is just going to make it worse. Like, you just, um, it really does require a lot of patience when you have people in your life that you love, your children, your parents, your friends, um, your spouse, and you see these amazing things in them, and they are making choices contrary to right. that. And to be, to be patient in waiting for that moment where they want it. They want it. Because we all have to want it for ourselves. We have to want the relationship with Jesus for ourselves. Like, everything that we have in our life is because we've chosen it. Because we want it and we've gone after it. And so we can't want that for the other people and force that on them. It never works out. Uh, one of the things that um, Steve, I had actually, Steve and I had, had this conversation on Thursday, and it was something that I had realized for myself, um, is that one of the things that God was so faithful in and showed me how to walk out uh, when we were, you know, going through a the stuff in our marriage, and, and Steve was making the choices that he was making. And how do, I, how do I love him? How do I honor him? How do I not, um, you know, get resentful or, or start treating him based upon his actions during that time? And God really showed me how to separate his actions and his choices from who God said he was. Like, it was just something that God had to continually minister to me and show me that his actions weren't who he really was. And a lot of times in our relationship with the people that we love, we don't do that well. And so when we have these conversations with them, when we have these hard, hard conversations with them, um, you know, it turns into, these are your actions, so this is who you are. And that's never received well. Nobody wants those hard conversations like, you know, you lied, so you're a liar. And, and being better at when we have these hard conversations with the people that we love, going into that conversation with, this is who you are? Why are you doing this? That makes a huge difference. When you're ministering to someone, when you're talking to someone, and you're like, I know who you are. God has shown me this amazing man or woman of God that you are. Why are you making these choices? Why are you doing these things that are harmful to your family, harmful to your marriage, harmful to yourself? Sorry. That's not who you are. And, and we, we don't always do that well. As parents, we don't always do that well. Going to our children with correction with our children and going to them and saying, I know who you are. I know your heart. Why did you choose to smack your brother upside the head? <laughs> you know, like, you know, just going to the people that we love and saying, I know this isn't who you are. Why are you doing these things? Why are you thinking this way? Why do you think this of yourself? Well, a lot of the things that we do is because we think this is who we are, so that's what we're doing. Yep. And, and then also, we don't do a good job, and this is where God really zoned in on me, because um, I was, for the most part, I'm not perfect at it, 
But when it comes to him, I, I feel like, and I guess I use the word feel, or I believe that I do a fairly good job of separating anything that he does that's not congruent with who God says he is, that I am able to know that's not who he is and not talk to him or treat him based upon his actions that are not congruent with who he is. But then when my husband comes to me and maybe, maybe, maybe points out some things in myself that are not congruent with who I am, I do a pretty good job of telling myself he thinks that's who I am. Instead of my husband loves me so much that he's coming to me with things that he sees that I'm doing or saying or thinking about myself that are not who I am. And so God has just shown me how, how poorly I do that towards myself. And so then, because I think he's coming to me and telling me I'm this terrible person because I did these terrible things, guess, guess what that does to our relationship? It kind of, it, 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 it creates this little wall of, I really don't like what you said because you just said, I'm this, I'm this, you know, I hate people or I'm a liar or, and that's not what he's doing. But because I can't look at it for what it truly is, him pointing out something about me that's not who I am, I've, I've twisted it into this lie of he's saying this is who you are. And so we don't do a good job of when someone comes to us with those hard conversations. It is because that's not who you are, and I love you enough to say, why are you doing something contrary to your divine nature? And so we've twisted it into this um, criticism, accusation, labeling us instead of coming into this conversation or receiving the conversation as this isn't who I am and they want to help me not think contrary to who I am. They want to help me not have uh, these words that are contrary to who I am or, you know, my actions are not lining up with who I am. That would just make... Do you see how if people came to you that way or you took it that way, how differently you would receive that hard conversation? It makes a huge difference, and it's just one of those things that God really showed me a couple weeks ago that I do that poorly when it comes to him coming to me and pointing things out in me that are not who I am. So I just want to encourage you all, when you have those hard conversations, go into it as the person going you know, wanting to have that conversation and as the person receiving that conversation to look at it with that heart where they're coming to you with things that are contrary to who they see you are. And they want to try and help you uproot those things that don't belong. Separating actions from identity is one of the most difficult processes that you'll ever learn in your life. And I, I had to learn it early on because I was disqualified for ministry. And so the Lord had to do a, a mighty work in me and do it pretty quick. And, and I got over the hump of that revelation a long time ago. And then I made the 
failure of when I was ministering to other people thinking that they were over that hump too. And so I'd come to people about things that are wrong in their life and say, hey, you're doing this and your identity is this, you know what's wrong. And they fled by the thousands. And I was like, what is wrong with, and I realized that so many people have no grid for separating action from identity that when I was coming to them about action, they assumed I was coming to them about identity. Mm -hmm. As if I was rejecting them or I hate them or I called them things that they weren't or whatever. And so I've had to learn to pull way back on that because it is such a hard revelation for people to get that it's hard for me to even minister that to other people because they very seldom have that revelation. Deborah Downs. Well, that kind of leads into this next question because we have, we are going to see a huge influx of people into the church that are so messed up and have no true foundation. And in religion, and in the way a lot of us were brought up, if we were brought up in the church at all, we have to have foundation, we have to have this, we have to have this, we have to have all of our ducks in a row, like you said, to be qualified to reach the lost, to do anything. And, you know, you go from glory to glory, and we, you know, see your fruit, and that's how we know that you're actually saved and redeemed, and, and all, all that stuff. But, time is short. And not to usurp the process, so to speak, but some guidance maybe on how we can ready ourselves a lot quicker and be able to see those people apart from their actions so that we can be the church that Jesus wants us to be for those people. Because reaching the lost is probably, to me, one of the hardest things when it comes to ministering to people that I don't know in the hospital or on the street or anything like that. To the degree that you open your heart up for a change, God will meet you there. What you seek, you find. Which just shows you how little most of us seek. We just kind of want to keep stacking on top of all the other stuff that we know and then we we kind of like in an arrogant way, almost in a narcissistic way, we're like, look at all the stuff I know. But the problem is 80% of it is bad no. And only 20% of it is really good effective knowledge. And so one of the things that both Kay and I uh, recognized right off the bat was she had no knowledge. When we first got wrecked by Jesus and started our path, she came from basically complete lack of any understanding of anything Christian. She didn't know a Bible verse. She I knew one. <laughs> she knew, she knew one. Uh, <laughs> and, and I came out of a cult. I had books, I had chapters of the Bible memorized. Still, even in my ungodly time, I had that much knowledge, but it was bad knowledge because I had learned bad doctrine from bad places. She had none. And what was super irritating to me is when we both basically got wrecked by Jesus around the same period, for the next two or three years, she outran me. You know how irritating that is to like know the Bible and have somebody who doesn't know the Bible having more fruit and more experience and more revelation with Jesus than you are? You know how arrogant it is too? 
one of the reasons was because she had nothing. She didn't have to tear out. So she just built good stuff on top of good stuff. I had to spend the first three years tearing out. And I did it. I was really purposeful about it. I spent, just like, to, just like now, I'll spend 16, 18 hours a day doing Jesus stuff because I still know I got a ton of stuff that needs to get out. You are the exact compilation of all of your knowledge and your experience in your life. If you are not having a fruitful life, if your soul is not prospering, if your finances are not prospering, if your health is not prospering, if your relationships are not prospering, it's because you built it. Okay, the four people that said amen, God bless you. Because the rest, like, no, this isn't my fault. My parents did this and society did this. I've been a victim my whole life. Okay. I hope, I hope you get that sorted before you get to the end. You, your experiences in religion and your experiences in life have built your belief system. It's called your philosophy of life. And you filter every single thing through your philosophy. Everything. I've had people come up to me and say, you know, I didn't like the thing that you said. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what did I say? And they told me what I said. And I said, I never said that. Yes, you did. No, I never said that. Yes, you did. You said it right here in this part of your sermon. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll text you the YouTube. You find the mark, give me the minute mark. And then this particular person one time, it was like Thursday or Friday, and I texted him. I'm like, hey, did you look at the YouTube? Yeah, I watched it five or six times. They must have cut it out of the YouTube because it wasn't in there. <laughs> That's just an example that you filter things through what you think. You, well, I know what Steve's really saying. I know what the words are behind the words. No, you don't. We built our lives on whatever the experiences you are. You had bad religious experiences, you are gonna have to be purposeful about tearing that out. Demons are cast out. Strongholds are torn down. And if you think you got a demon problem, and so you keep trying to cast it out, when you actually have a stronghold problem, you will never, ever change. And most of the problems in most people's lives are stronghold problems, not demonic problems. The way you get rid of a stronghold is the way you built a stronghold. You built a stronghold brick by brick on purpose. The only way to get rid of a stronghold is to take it down brick by brick on purpose. Now, what can God do? He can bring you a bunch of helpers. A, a, amen? amen? He can bring you a bunch of helpers, and they will help you get the bricks out. So you can fast forward the process, but you're going to have to be incredibly humble and incredibly submitted. And those things are as rare as hen's teeth. Rare. So you can fast forward it, but it's going to take superhuman humility to make that happen. Yeah, and I'm just thinking, uh, you know, most of the, the men and women that we've uh, seen in our lives that have 
impactful ministries or just that we have seen from, you know, smaller to bigger. Uh, one of the biggest things that I see in all those ministries and all those people is their knowledge of the word. Yeah. Um, their understanding of God's heart through the word, um, the, their understanding of what ministry is supposed to look like through the word and through Jesus' example in the gospels. Um, and so honestly, for me, it's like the word and, and relationship with him are like the two biggest, they go hand in hand. You can't really separate the two. But those, I would say those are the two biggest things that if we want to minister to people well, those are the things that we need to have as the biggest priority in our lives. Relationship with God and understanding of his word and spending time in his word and understanding it even more through the word. Um, because if you want, um, I'm, and I'm sure that the prayer ministry team that you experienced this, that when you're ministering to people, um, it is that still small voice that he speaks to you for that person, or it is a specific scripture that he highlights to you that you can minister through to that person. Like it, all of the ministry that we have flows out of our intimacy with him and hearing his voice for that person. And so when we, we run across these people in our lives or just out and about living life, you know, we're going to be able to minister to them um, from, from, that, from that ability to hear his small voice for ourselves and then to the, to the people in the world around us. And then the more we know the word, the more God entrusts us with the bigger things. There's a reason why he is the pastor of this church and he ministers to 100 people on Sunday morning because he has developed his intimate relationship with the Father because he is diligent to be in the Word. So God has entrusted him with, with this and with ministry and with traveling. And so if you desire to minister to people that come in, that are, that are broken, that are hurting, that's where, that's where we all have to start. And the more that we are faithful in those areas, the more he's going to bring into this body and into this church. Yeah. So if I was going to go to a mega church, I would know what to expect. And if I was going to come to Beloved, I would know what to expect. And to use Kay's words, um, you got to want to. I'm here because I want to. Um, and I want to take us to Genesis 1, 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth among the earth. You got to want to. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, <clears throat> created him. Male and female created them. I want to jump over now to Isaiah, oops, Isaiah 9.
It's Isaiah 9, chapter 7. So as I'm wanting to take dominion, chapter 7 says, Of the increase in his government. Well, his government. And I read government and went, well, wait a minute. What's government doing in the Bible? (laughs) And peace. There shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. So I'm trying to understand these and put these together. When I read in the end, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. (laughs) So I'm trying to understand this, and I'd like for you to put it in biblical perspective. And is this the Great Awakening? And if so, biblically, where do I follow this? How do I study it, and where do I go next? All right, one of the things that I owe, beloved church, is a legitimate and in-depth conversation about eschatology. I have never stated exactly where I stand on eschatological realities. And one of the reasons is because almost everybody has a system or a formula as to where they get their eschatology from. And I don't necessarily really want to hurt someone, but I also obviously want you to have the truth. But I've also put it on the, on the burner of, it's not super duper important for you to know what the end times are because it really shouldn't change the purpose of how you live your life today. But the reality is, is that your eschatology actually has a lot to do with how you live your life. I'll just give you an example. If you believe like much of the body of Christ that the world's gonna get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, and the devil's going to take over, and Antichrist is going to rule everything, we're going to be a one-world government, and all the Christians, the, the few that actually get to that point, we're all going to have to hide in bomb shelters, eat spam, and drink bottled water while we're shining our AR-15s, then that is going to lead to your philosophy of life as to what you do. You're going to have the opinion of keeping to yourself, staying away, and eventually save up money so you can build your personal bomb shelter. If you believe that it's going to be, it's going to get better and better, and that part of it getting better and better is that we share the good news of Christ with our neighbors, with our friends, with our families, and their lives change, then you're obviously going to be way more motivated to share the good news with people. If you think that the end time's going to come quicker based upon more sinners, then it's going to be to your advantage to never tell anybody the good news so that they can all go to hell and God can come back quicker. Are you following me? So your eschatology actually has a lot to do with how you live your life, your philosophy towards how you do Christianity. And so I owe you this. I owe beloved church a really deep, in-depth conversation about eschatology that I'm not gonna do today. But I will say, 
some of that particular question that you have right there is answered in Isaiah 61, where um, it tells the prophetic word is that we, the people of God, are going to be the ones that are doing the things that are being prophesied there. And the zeal of the Lord that was just in that verse, it's not God's zeal that's going to make God do more stuff. It's us possessing his zeal to do his stuff. And the body of Christ has been in a coma for 50 years. There's people that can't even stay awake in this building. And I'm not picking on you. I'm just telling you. You, you can't do it. Like, it's just not that important. Like, I, I know I need to be a Christian. I know I need to be a fairly good one. But, man, I mean, you just rattle on about the Bible. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm zoning. That, that is not zeal. The Bible is the word of God. It is Christ. There are, there are basically three eschatological viewpoints, which is premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial. And you will filter through anything end times based upon that predisposition as to view things through one of those filters. The premillennialists have uh, two branches, which is um, dispensational premillennialism or uh, historical or traditional uh, pre-millennialism. Uh, pre, uh, and I am going to eventually give you guys uh, a deeper dissertation about how that works, but that's where the majority of the body of Christ is in, is in premillennialism, which is you know, uh, before the millennium, the thousand-year reign where we're all with Jesus and, and Satan is locked in jail, you know, that's, that's going to be the good times. But up until then, you know, it's going to be pretty terrible. And then there's seven years of, and I literally don't have time to give you all the Bible on this, but I, I'll just, I'm just going to do a real quick flyby, and then we'll do this later. You cannot understand the book of Revelation without understanding Ezekiel 38 and 39, uh, Psalm 48, uh, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 10. Because a lot of what John talks about in the book of Revelation filters through the Old Testament. There's 580 references in the book of Revelation to Old Testament verses. 580 in 22 chapters. If you do not understand the Old Testament, you ain't got a ripping clue about what John's talking about in the book of Revelation. And a lot of the people that are writing the million dollar books that Christians in today's generation are buying up about the end times don't have a clue. And they're telling you how it's going to work. It, it is, it is, it is, it's hurtful. It's painful for me to watch it and to watch so many Christians get sucked into the vortex of buying the ne next prophetic book about the end times that the guy had the vision from the angel and had a revelation of whatever verse. And so now he knows that there's 88 reasons for Jesus to come back in 1988. Sold millions of copies. They've been doing it over and over and over and over. So that 
is the number one context. Number two is, those of you that know the book of Revelation, you know that from Revelation chapter 6 to Revelation chapter 19, you have seven seals, you have seven trumpets, and you have seven bowls or seven vials. This will help you if you want to understand something. Those are all replays. The book of Revelation is not written chronologically in order. Revelation chapter 12 happened at the birth of Christ. And so if Revelation chapter 12 happened at the birth of Christ and you think it's chronological, you have got some serious things to figure out. John didn't write it chronological so you could get your cool end times map and start checking the boxes and say, okay, well, we're on 4.5 trumpets and then we're on three vials and we're... It doesn't, you, your little map that hangs on the wall of the end time events that everybody's like to, it, it don't work. Just, I'm just letting you know, it don't work. Revelation chapter 19 and 20 cannot be understood without putting it in the Gog and Magog understandings of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And Ezekiel 38 and 39 are, is a prophetic image of Jesus coming back and whooping tail on all the people that did terrible stuff to God. So I'm saying all this to say, oh, here's two other quick things too. The seven years of tribulation that we all try to figure out whether we're going to be, man, I'm about to make a mess. I don't believe in a rapture the way that the Bible, or the way that, the way the Bible. I don't believe in the rapture. First of all, you're not going to find the word rapture in the Bible. I don't believe in a rapture the way that premillennialists believe in a rapture, number one. Uh, I don't believe that the seven year of tribulation is, uh, is to be taken literally. And I also don't believe that the thousand year millennial reign can be taken literally. If you believe that the thousand year reign is, can be taken liberally, uh, literally, then we are a thousand years late right now. Because the thousand year millennial was the church age and if it was only a thousand years and we're in 2023 for those of you that just woke up, that means we're 2023 years late. It's not literal. It's the same way that Paul used referencing that the, to a God, a thousand years is as a day and a day is as a thousand years taken from the prophetic of end time verses in the Old Testament. And so it's not an exact thousand year reign. So if you're waiting for a thousand years where we're all going to hang out in, in the new eating on earth and then after that, God's going to let Satan out so he can go and, and do terrible things to people. You've got some weird eschatology, but I'm just letting you know, that's the main eschatology. They think God like loses his brain when it comes to the end times and nothing makes sense. It doesn't work that way. So that's real quick. And I'll tell you this, almost every uh, eschatological point of view is based upon your interpretation of Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 15. So however you view Revelation 20, 1 through 15 is going to be your eschatological foothold that you're going to view everything through. So you need to make sure that you get that right. So all of you that don't know a bunch about the Bible, everything I just said just spun you in a tailspin and didn't answer Gary's question. Gary's question is basically the same question that we have that was emailed to us, which is what will it look like after the Great Awakening and what will it look like after the second coming of Christ occurs? 
Are we going into the Great Awakening? What is it going to look like? How's it going to develop? What, how's that going to play out? And then is that going to lead into the Second Coming? Is that a general overview of your question? I'd say more, mine is more um, not what it looks like to everyone. What's it look like to me? Yep. And for me to take action and for me to want to and for me to take dominion and restore the republic that was on God's shoulder. What? Can I say something real quick? Yeah. Okay. Trying to get your attention. It's Steve um, Anke. I know, but. Um, <clears throat> so uh, Gary referenced Isaiah 9 7, um, talking about the increase of his government and peace, that there shall be no end. Um, I hate it when I say um. Government is a system of rule. It's not an American thing. It's not a European thing. It's a system of rule. And so God has his system that he would like to see happen on this planet, his system of ruling, which I believe was what he established in the garden. That's what he wants it to look like. And so I, sometimes, I think sometimes when we see this word government, we put it in this, American, what we think government is, context. When government basically is just a system of rule, and God is wanting us to get back to his system of ruling this earth and this planet and, and understanding what that's supposed to look like. And he, he, showed, he told Adam and Eve what it was in the garden. Right. And, you know, we just haven't... That is what he wants. He wants us to get back to the original plan of rulership on this planet, which is what he gave us in the garden. And so when you guys see that word government, you know, don't, don't filter it through your, your Americanized version of government. God's system of government is not what we're experiencing. It's not bad what we're experiencing right now when it's done correctly, but God has a better system, a better, you know, system of ruling this planet. And it is, you know, the foundations in the garden. Perfect constitutional America is not a theocracy. And God's government is a theocracy. He's the king. It's his kingdom. The best thing on earth that I know based upon flawed humanity until we get to that point is the republic the way that the constitutional said that it's supposed to be. And so I fight for both. But I'm fighting more for the kingdom than I am for the restoration of the American Republic. Now, I believe that in fighting for the kingdom, one of the stages is the restoration of our republic the way that the Constitution said that it should be. So I'm fighting for that. So having said that, what is our, what is our job? It always starts as big as the circle that you have. Am I a kingdom person? Does the government of God rule inside of my cellular structure. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes I have a flesh flash and I wanna pop off. The other day I was coming back from Wisconsin and I just passed a guy on a four lane road. I was just minding my own business with my crews on and I look over and the guy is screaming at me, flipping me off. I'm like, you got the wrong truck, dude. I'm just, and I had a chance to have a flesh flash and I was like, oh my Lord. I'm going to let no uh, unknown guy with an unknown problem. And this is really going to set me off because he showed me a finger. 
I literally had a moment like, why is this such a big deal? But it's a huge deal. People will shoot each other, especially in Texas over that stuff. But until the kingdom rules here, until the king and his kingdom rules here, it can't rule here. And if it can't rule here, then it can't rule with me and my kids. And then it can't rule at this church. It has to start there. So to the degree of taking authority and dominion over large systems, it has to be a bunch of people that are letting the kingdom rule in their individuals before they're going to have the ability to affect a system. Jesus didn't come in and fix Rome. What he came in was he initiated the kingdom in 11 guys. And most people don't know that, but those 11 guys and what they did 300 years later destroyed Rome. Mm -hmm. Rome was yep. destroyed as prophesied by Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. That that was the last kingdom that the stone would come in and hit the feet. You remember the statue, that the vision that he had? The stone came in, crushed the feet, and the whole statue fell over. Jesus was that stone, and Rome was that last kingdom, and it took Christianity 300 years to destroy Rome. But they did. Rome got destroyed by Christianity. You can go do all the history you want to do. I'm telling you, Rome got destroyed by Christianity. It fell under its own weight. And America's I can see both ways because what happened in Rome and the debauchery that was taking place in Rome at that time is stuff that's happening in America. I mean, we go to other countries yeah. and they're like, oh my God, what is wrong with your country? That, that, you know how embarrassing that is? Because we yeah. used to be the standard for like yep. carrying uh, Christianity into the world. We used to be the ones like America, they've got Christians and Bibles and churches and, and now the other countries are like, man, you guys, you don't know if if men can be pregnant or not. Like what some of us know. Uh, until, until the kingdom and the king rule you, rule your marriage, rule your home, rule your family, then rule your neighborhood. and rule, that, is, that is our responsibility. And so it is, um, it's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. That's how God told uh, the first church, the 120 at the day of Pentecost, that's how he said they were going to do it. It's still the mode of the day. So you exercising authority and dominion over things that are directly in your control is going to create more uh, people and more opportunities to expand that direct control to indirect control. Does that make sense? Yeah, thank you for all the scripture references. Yeah. And I got a ton more. When I give you this conversation, which might be after the hero within, then I'll, you'll, have a, you'll have a much clearer understanding of my personal eschatology, which is a lot of the motivation for what I do and why I do it and how I do it. All right. Craigers. So in 1 John 4, 8, it says the devil sinned from the beginning. The word for beginning there is the same one that's in Genesis, but God didn't create the devil to sin. So how do you square that circle? Uh, from the beginning, the beginning that, he, that it's saying there, I bet you in the Greek it's archaeos or something like that, which literally means the beginning of whatever is being referenced, not necessarily the beginning before. There was nobody but God at the very beginning. 
God was singular. And then he created a heavenly family first. A spiritual family preceded the human family. And from that spiritual family, he created a council. And that council uh, is enumerated in Deuteronomy chapter 32. If you don't have a Deuteronomy 32 worldview, you'll never understand eschatology, and you'll also never understand really what the beginning is in all of scripture. And uh, after he created that heavenly family, he chose from that heavenly family people to be on his divine council. And the divine council is who God was talking to in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where he says, let us make man in his own image. A lot of preachers say, well, God was just talking to himself. Okay, you don't talk to yourself if yourself is God. Like, hey, Jesus, we should, well, I never thought about that, Father. I'm glad you told me because here I was just completely ignorant about what was next on the plan. Oh, that's right. I'm God. You're God. He wasn't talking to himself. He was talking to the divine council, but then the actual creator went back to singular. That's why it's singular in the beginning, God, and then it's plural, let us create man, and then it goes back to singular, and it says, and God created because God was the creator, but he brought the, the divine council into um, the, he, he did a family thing. He had a family meeting and said, hey, you know what would be great? Let's expand the family. Let's have humans. And that's why the angels say, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you visit him. That's why the angels are like, these, why are you so fawning over these people? Because they're just people. So the beginning that's being referenced there would have been that garden time after the heavenly family has been created, after the earthly family has been created, that would be referenced as the genesis of time. That's why genesis is genesis. Genesis means the beginning. And so the beginning of time really kind of starts at genesis, even though there's already a bunch of stuff before that that had happened. And so, because the story that God is telling through scripture to bring all of us into the knowledge has to start somewhere. We obviously understand through inference that God was pre-existent before time, is pre-existent after time, all knowledge, you know, all these characteristics that we believe about God, that he is all-knowing, all-powerful, outside of time, all these things that we know about the Most High God, that you cannot bring that depth into the scriptures to get all of humanity to understand what's happening. That's what the story of the scriptures are, is here's where we're at, here's what's going on, here's what you need to do, now go out there and do it. So the beginning then would have been after already stuffing things, specifically after the fall. And it wasn't the fall, and I'm, I'm way out of time. There was three falls, I'm sorry if I'm, a bunch of you would probably like, I thought there was a fall. Yeah, there was a fall, and then there was a fall, and then there was a fall. So there was three falls, and each of those have a really important part as to how humanity works. But that specific reference would have been the, the first fall of mankind, where they were tricked by the Nakash, which was the serpent who may or may not was the devil and or Satan. Yep, sorry for that. Oh, look, we're out of time. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, she's not, she's not even about to go there. So, uh, I hope that helped. Yep, all right. That's that. Thank you for having questions. I think I created more questions than I answered today. Maybe, just a couple. Yeah. But, we'll, but yeah, but we'll have, we'll have some end time conversations. So if nothing, 
If you don't get anything out of this time that we've had together, at least be hopeful about the fact that we're going to talk about eschatology soon. Yeah. I think we have to because of all the things that are going on, because we are going in this great awakening. And I, part of me talking about that eschatology is going to take you what I believe it's going to start to look like as we get deeper into these things. So it, they, they'll all play together, and I think there'll be a lot of personal uh, takeaway. I know that I just put some stuff together in the last couple of months that I had been, I've had questions over for 25 years. And I literally just put some pieces together. That's why I can stand here and say that I have a little bit of confidence of having this conversation because until I would have put these pieces together, I would have never had this conversation. But I literally just put some of these pieces together. So I'm like, <gasps> I need to share all this. I'm like, oh, but this is like a really big conversation. <laughs> I can't just share it. So uh, please rise and I will bless you. Thank you so much for sharing this time with us as we have encountered Jesus Christ through the ministry of his life-changing word. If you would like to learn more about Steve Castle Ministries and Beloved Church, you can go online to stevecastle.com or belovedchurchillinois.com. You can also contact us at 815-990-0367. Always remember that you are a part of the Beloved Family of God and Beloved Church is the place where you are greatly loved. Now please open your heart to receive as Pastor Steve proclaims the blessing of the Father over your life. I pray, I declare that above all things that you allow the finished work of the cross to bring prosperity into your finances and also divine health prospering your body and all of these things are going to affect you in a supernatural way as you allow your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions and your personality to be perfected in prosperity that the Father desires for you to have. We love you and we cannot wait to see and be with you again soon. Goodbye, beloved.